Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1016. Well, by all indications, last week was the most interesting sermon that I have ever preached. And there were tons of follow-up questions and conversations afterward, which I love. But then I spent the week knowing that I'm probably not going to live up to that today. And so uh, when you preach your most interesting sermon, you can only go down from there. So that's a bummer, but we're going to do our best this morning as uh, Peter calls us here in chapter 4 to have the proper perspective as we encounter persecution for following Jesus. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So last week we looked at how Jesus' suffering led to his victory over all his enemies, and how that means that, that our suffering and the process of following Jesus will, will ultimately end in victory as well. Now as we move forward into chapter 4, Peter draws out uh, instructions from, from what he has already established. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so the, the, the main idea of this passage is that in light of what Jesus has done, we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Now the, the phrase arm yourselves refers to preparing for battle by, by putting on armor, right? But, but this is not a call for us to pick up swords or shields for physical combat because Christians are engaged primarily in a spiritual battle, right? Instead, Peter calls his readers to arm themselves with a particular mindset or, or a way of thinking. So what specifically is this mindset that we need to have? Well, it's the, the same one as Jesus had. And contextually, I think that, that Peter is emphasizing the fact that Jesus suffered in, in the process of obedience. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And so we need to embrace the probability that we are going to suffer in the process of obedience also, as we seek to obey Him in our lives. And so we need to have the same perspective that Jesus had. Now you may be thinking, okay, but, but arm yourselves sounds like such a a strong phrase. Right? What's, what's going on that, that we need to have this, this militant-like uh, expectation and, and perspective? Well, it's because while our, our battle is not physical, it is nevertheless a very real battle. And if you go into battle ill-equipped to fight, then you're probably going to be defeated. Now, spiritual battles are generally fought in the arena of our hearts and in our minds which is why I think the armor that we need is the right mindset. 
And I think the main issue in the battle is, is the dynamic between expectation and reality. And we've talked about before the, 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 the dynamic of expectation versus reality. Right? When our expectations don't match reality, we struggle. Right? Things go crazy. Right? So your, your doctor's appointment was set for 10 o'clock, but now it's 11.15 and you're still sitting in the waiting room. Right? So now you're angry. Right? Now you're mad because your expectation is not matching up to reality. Or, or maybe you're having company over for dinner tonight, and you're so excited because everything is going to be just right, but then Walmart has to make substitutions on your last-minute pickup order, and, and now you're anxious, now you're worried, because what you thought was the case isn't the case, and now you're going to have to adapt. Right? When, our, when our expectations don't match reality, we struggle. And for any number of, of various reasons, we as Americans tend to expect that we should not have to endure suffering. Right? A part of it may be the, the influence of the prosperity gospel. that teaches if we, if we just have enough faith, then, then we can create in our, in our own power financial and, and medical and relational well-being and avoid suffering. And beyond that, most all of us have a, a very natural sense of, of moralism. Right? That, I mean, like nobody's perfect, but as long as we're generally good people and we try to avoid the really, really bad sins, then, then generally speaking, God should give us blessings and he should protect us from the difficulties of life and from suffering. Right, wherever we get this expectation from, we don't get it from Jesus. Right, we remember from Luke chapter 6 that he warned his disciples, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then just before his death in John 15, he warned, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so simply put, if we follow Jesus faithfully, then suffering is coming on some level. And so the danger is that if we live our lives with the expectation that we should not have to endure suffering, then when it happens, we're going to be thrown for a loop. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to struggle. Right? So we may end up compromising our faith in order to avoid having to experience suffering. Or perhaps uh, we may end up becoming bitter that God allowed this to happen to us, and we may walk away from, from our profession of faith altogether. I think at best, we'll have a long, difficult process of learning to trust God in uncertain circumstances, a lot like trying to learn to swim once you've already fallen into water. It's much better to arm ourselves with a proper mindset now. You shouldn't play football if you're not willing to get hit. You shouldn't work as a nurse if you can't stand the sight of blood. And you shouldn't expect to follow Jesus without realizing that at least some people aren't going to like that and will make your life harder as a result. And then in the second half of verse 1, Peter explains more about the importance of this mindset. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, so there's, there's a connection between our relationship with suffering for, for Christ and our relationship to sin. And when he says the word ceased, 
Peter is not saying that we can actually get to a point where we are sinless in this life. We're never going to be perfect before uh, the Lord takes us to heaven. What he means is that we've come to a point where we have made a decisive break with with our sinful lifestyle, the the way that we pursued it before we became believers. In, In other words, our willingness to endure hardship in the process of being obedient to Jesus is an expression of repentance. Right? When believers choose to suffer for their faith rather than conform to the patterns of this world, they, they demonstrate that they have made a definite break, a genuine break with their sin, and have placed all of their hope in Jesus. Right? What, what else could explain a change like that? And then in verse 2, we see that the result of our break from sin it is to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so there's, there's a distinction between human passions on the one hand and the will of God. As we've taught before, by, by nature, we seek satisfaction in, in things that we think uh, will make us happy, things that look good, feel good, taste good. But the reality is that we are only going to be able to find true fulfillment in a relationship with the God who created us. And along those lines, there's a common misconception that that Christians have to choose between being good or having fun. That's a a false distinction. You don't have to choose between one or the other, but it's a popular perception among the world. So uh, again, there's this idea that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to stop doing all those things that you enjoy doing. But again, the consistent testimony of the scriptures is that true, lasting joy and contentment can only be found by living according to God's design. Friends, God has given us so many good gifts for us to enjoy in this life. But the problem is that sin tempts us to believe the lie that things will be even better if we take those good gifts and use them in ways or, or to degrees that go outside of the boundaries that God has set for those things. Right? And so while, while, while doing those things may be exciting and fun for a moment, the, the truth is that it always leads to devastation in the end. And it's like I, I try to tell my kids this all the time. It's a lot like eating chocolate. Chocolate is great. It, it tastes wonderful. But, but if you think you can just eat chocolate all the time, because what could be better than that? Right, well, it's not going to take you very long to find that you don't feel good anymore. And your body is going to be malnourished. And there's going to be all kinds of problems. Because chocolate's not designed by God to be the, the staple of your diet. It's good in its place. It's bad when it gets out of that place. The same thing for, for the lines on the street right? when we're driving. Those, those lines are not designed to imprison us. They're meant to, to keep us in our, in our lane so that everyone can use the roadway safely and effectively. And so you may find it exciting to, to drive by swerving in and out of the lanes, and that may be exciting for a time, but if you do that long enough, you're going to crash, literally. You're, you're going to crash. And so so the, 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 the point is that whether it is food and drink or physical pleasures or money or whatever— when we use what God has given us in ways or, or in degrees that go beyond his design, whatever buzz or thrill it may give us temporarily, it will always give way to destruction in the end. 
All right? and, and the problem, at least one of the problems of humanity, is that by nature we go through life chasing a feeling instead of finding a true fulfillment in the gospel and its, impl- and its implications for our lives. And so a couple of years ago, I came across uh, one of those quotes that just completely changes your perspective on things. Uh, and I don't, I don't remember who it was. I think it was either uh, the Puritan Thomas Brooks or, or it may have been J.C. Ryle. I don't remember exactly who said it, but I'll never forget the statement. It was, blessed indeed is the person who realizes that happiness and holiness are the same thing. Blessed indeed is the person who realizes that happiness and holiness are the same thing. When we follow God's design for our lives in obedience to his commandments, we find fullness of joy and in life. I read that and it was like a spiritual two-by-four knocked me upside the head. Right, and this, this is the problem, isn't it? Right, we, we know what God's word says, but, but then I see this thing over here and, and it, it looks good and I know it's going to taste good or it's going to feel good. It, it will give me something that I want. And, and that's the battle for sanctification. Right, it's the process, just as we sang earlier, of, of learning to stand on the promises of God, to believe that God's way is the best way every single time. Even if it's hard, even if it leads us into suffering, in the end, we will never regret obeying the Lord. And and so Peter calls us here to have the same mindset that Jesus had when it comes to suffering. This mindset is important because suffering is going to come whether we're prepared for it or not, and also because a willingness to suffer in the process of of obeying Christ gives evidence of salvation. And next, Peter's going to develop his argument further as we pick up again, beginning in verse 3. He writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So as we pick up here again in verse 3, Peter expands on his point when he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He provides a list there of of examples of types of activity that the Romans were were well known for, uh, all of which take God's good gifts and then abuse them in in ways or to degrees that go beyond his design. And his point is that if we really recognize sin for what it is, if we we really recognize the, the wrongness, not just that we shouldn't do it, but that it's objectively wrong, If we recognize sin for what it really is, then you also realize that we've wasted more than enough of our lives pursuing it already. Think about someone who who is knowingly eating sugar-coated poison. And they look at you and they, they take another bite and they say, I know this is killing me, but it just tastes so good, I can't stop eating it. Well, you would say, no, that's that's foolish. You you really need to stop. Like yesterday or, or a year ago, 
Like it's way past time for you to stop doing that. And that's exactly Peter's point here. All of us come to Christ in different ways and through different circumstances, but all of us have indulged in more than enough spiritual poison, and it's past time for us to leave it behind. And then in verse 4, Peter gives more detail about the opposition that his original readers are experiencing. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And I personally, I like the phrase flood of debauchery because it really conceptualizes and emphasizes the, the excessive nature of our sinfulness. Right? It's not just that, that, that we come into this world and we make an occasional mistake here and there or, or a misstep on occasion. No, by nature, we engage in a, a steadily overflowing stream of rebellion against the God who created us. Right, but now that these believers are no longer participating in these activities, the unbelieving world around them is responding to them negatively. And so Peter says that they're surprised. And when he says that, he's not just talking about an, an unexpected realization like surprise. Now, th- this word has a distinctly negative connotation to it. Okay, they are, they are uh, disturbed or astonished. They feel offended by it. And I think the reason for that is that the fact of these Christians' non-participation in these activities, it implies that these activities are wrong, right? Because why else wouldn't you do them? And so even if, if you don't try to make an issue of it yourself, by abstaining, there's an unspoken disapproval, disapproval that, that, that there's just no way around. It's unavoidable. And so Peter explains that the culture around them responds by maligning them which can refer to anything from throwing out insults to to outright verbal abuse, among other things. And so they may say things like, oh, you must think that you're better than everyone else. Or they may say, you're you're judgmental, you're a hateful person. Uh, In the context of the first century in the Roman Empire, they may even say that you're you're not a good Roman, You're, you're a political insurrectionist, you're not doing what good Romans do. They may call them names or make up lies against them or or any number of other things. And certainly verbal opposition is usually the on-ramp to to greater and and, and more significant forms of opposition, whether that be social marginalization or imprisonment, physical beating, or or even martyrdom, potentially. Uh, And this was certainly the case in the first century. What started out as verbal opposition became dreadful forms of persecution. So things are difficult for these believers, but Peter reassures them in verse 5 when he reminds them that those who oppose them will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so it's always important for us to keep the big picture in mind as we go through this life. That the unbelieving world may seem to be in control for right now. They may seem to be the ones who are in authority and they may, can make life difficult for us. But in time, soon enough, those roles are going to be reversed, and they will stand before the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and they will give an account for the way that they have opposed God's people. And so I don't don't think that we should look forward to the judgment of of our enemies. We certainly know from the New Testament that we should pray for them and, and look for opportunities to show love to them and pray for their salvation. But I do think that Peter intends for it to be encouraging to us as we go through difficult times to know 
that God will make all things right in the end. And we can be faithful now, no matter what happens, because we know that he is going to take care of it in his own time. And then in verse 6, Peter ends the passage by saying, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And once again, everything starts to get a little fuzzy here, just like last week. Uh, what is Peter saying? And so the, the language that he uses, once again, is ambiguous, and there are all kinds of questions as to who these dead people are, and when they heard the gospel, and what we even mean when we say gospel in this particular context, and what is the distinction between uh, judged in the flesh the way people are, and live in the spirit the way God does. And, and once again, there are, there are any number of of interpretations. Peter obviously expected that his original readers understood something that we do not understand today. Uh, and like last week, there are, there are a variety of interpretations and then variations of each of those interpretations. Uh, in my view, none of those are without their problems. I, I don't see any explanation of this that doesn't have any loose ends. But once again, the good news is that however we put the pieces of the puzzle together, Peter's overall point remains the same, as, as we'll see. So just briefly, the, the majority interpretation is that Peter is referring to those from among these churches that he's writing to who have heard and believed the gospel and, and then died. And so the point would be that while they have still experienced physical death as a form of judgment for sin, which is something that all people do, they're now able to live spiritually with the Lord because of their faith in Christ. Right? God is going to judge the living and the dead, and this is why the gospel is so important, so that we can have eternal life. The second interpretation, which is connected to how you interpret verse 19 from last week, is that when Jesus descended to the dead and proclaimed his victory over the, the demons in prison, uh, he also proclaimed the good news of his victory to all of God's old covenant people who, who were uh, in Sheol, which is the Old Testament uh, concept of the place of the dead. All, right, all of the, the saints of the Old Testament died in faith, not, not experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises in their own time, but, but believing that eventually he would send the Messiah to save them and, and to, to come through on his promises. And so from this perspective, Jesus went and proclaimed the good news that it had finally happened. He had come and lived and died and was about to rise again. And then afterwards, he took them with him from Sheol and into heaven. And I know that probably brings up all kinds of questions that you may have about that. And so write them down. And then when we start Q&A back up next week, we can talk more about it. Uh, if you're interested. So personally, I believe that both of these interpretations are true. I, I believe both of these things are true. I'm not entirely sure which one Peter is talking about specifically here. Uh, I probably lean more towards the first one uh, that is referring to Christians who have died, but at any rate, the point is that the gospel has been proclaimed so that those who believe it will have eternal life with God, no matter what happens in this life. Right? Our, our suffering will lead to glory, and the world's opposition will end in judgment. And so with this confidence, we can persevere through the ups and downs of this life, regardless of what the world throws at us. And so in our passage this morning, Peter calls us to have the proper perspective 
as we encounter persecution for following Jesus. And just the, the, the reality that the New Testament says over and over again is that if we follow Jesus faithfully, then on some level we are eventually going to find ourselves swimming against the current of our society at large. And that when that happens, uh, we will experience pushback in, in varying degrees. You know, we all have a natural aversion to pain and to discomfort. And that's actually a good thing. That's how God designed us so we don't do dumb things uh, and, and then suffer the, the consequences. But, but the problem is that Satan and the world will try to use that against us in order to make us conform to its standards, whether by intimidation or through the prospect of punishment. And so Peter's point here is that we have to arm ourselves with the proper perspective, with a mindset that says that, that what God has promised us is worth enduring whatever difficulty we may encounter as we pursue it. Now, obviously, nobody knows the future, what's going to happen in America, and if or, or, or when anything is going to, to change drastically. Obviously, we can track the trajectory of things. It doesn't bode well for, for a Christian worldview. But since we can't know the future, I, I really just want to, as we think about this passage, ask a few questions uh, about uh, some things of, of how things are even right now. Right? Not even talking about persecution, but, but how are things right now? Do you speak differently than your co-workers do, both in, in what you say and in how you say it? Do you ever have to politely decline opportunities to, to go out and engage in various activities with, with unbelieving friends? Does your commitment to the Lord and, and to His people dictate how you utilize your Sunday in, in contrast to the other families on your kids' sports team? Are you willing to share the gospel with someone, even though they may look at you strangely? So I'm, I'm going to be, be honest, as I've been thinking about it throughout 1 Peter. I, so often I, I'll see people, especially on social media, and they'll kind of like romanticize suffering for the gospel. And they'll say things like, boy, if, if persecution ever breaks out here, I'm going to you know, fill in the blank. And I'm not so sure that we will, if we're honest. I'm not sure that we're actually ready. We may be in denial, or, or we may just not be paying attention, but if our expectations collide with reality, I'm afraid we're going to be in trouble. I mean, if you think about it, so often we seem willing to compromise when, when there's really very little pressure. Now, I wonder how that bodes for us if we ever come into a situation where something significant is actually on the line. I think we may need to do some, some soul-searching this morning. Church, we have a glorious eternity to look forward to. But the Lord calls us to be faithful to Him until we get there. And in that process, things could get a little rough. Things might be tough. And so we need to heed Peter's words in this passage and arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus did. Settle it in your mind now that no matter what comes, you're going to be faithful to the Lord. And the good news is that we can do this because we have great confidence that the Lord is going to provide for us every step of the way, which is the consistent testimony of our brothers and sisters in other places throughout church history, that, that this is very hard, but the Lord is faithful. 
And we also know that ultimately our suffering will lead to victory in the end. And so this morning, let's arm ourselves with a mindset that is prepared to suffer for following Jesus until he brings us into the promised glory. Let's pray together.